Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Harold Shapiro, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this third in the series of public lectures we've had uh, this week on cloning. Forgotten the exact catchphrase we have is here, what should we do? Something of that nature, as you've seen on the posters. And we are going to hear some discussion of, of that tonight. We have tonight, really, I think, a very interesting program. We have uh, a panel that well, you'll hear four different presentations of 10 to 15 minutes each from some of our distinguished guests who I'll introduce one at a time and just um, begin just a moment. And then uh, I will moderate a panel session uh, with those uh, four distinguished uh, scholars and, of course, John Gordon, who gave the first of our talks earlier this week. And uh, so at first it won't quite look like a panel because I'm going to ask each of the speakers to come up here and have their say and then sit right back down. But I'll call them all up in the end. They'll have uh, questions for each other, I am sure, and of course we'll be glad to take questions from the audience as well. Now the contemporary cloning debate, or at least the contemporary debate as it reflects on the issue of cloning human beings, probably has at least its modern origin in the speculations of two biologists, two distinguished biologists, the British biologist Haldane, the American biologist Letterberg, who speculated about this issue uh, when it was hardly, uh, seemed, seemed like still a remote possibility in the 1960s. That didn't seem to generate an awful lot of heat uh, at the time, although there was a very interesting interchange between two interesting thinkers, that is Paul Ramsey and Fletcher, on Fletcher, which was really rather heated, actually, um, going back and reading it. I don't recall. I did not read about the debate then. I've only read about it in retrospect now. It was a heated debate, which really raised most of the issues which were raised once again uh, sort of uh, 20, 25 years later. But that, too, died down uh, for lack of interest, I would say, or lack of immediate prospect that this was something we really had to deal with in, in, in the near future. And something else took over, namely science fiction took over. Cloning became an interesting subject for movies, books, uh, which I can put in a rough category of science fiction, which were very well read and very well received by the public. And so the public images regarding human cloning, in my judgment, really became formed not by the thoughtful speculations of Haldane and Letterberg uh, and the interest they had, or indeed very much by the very thoughtful interchange between, although heated interchange between Ramsey and Fletcher in the early 1970s, but really by the uh, books and movies uh, that came out since then, which gave people some kind of image of what this human cloning must be like. It's for that reason, I think, that when the Dolly experiment was announced, what followed in the immediate aftermath, uh, as far as I can tell, is something close to moral panic that people just became panicky, not because they understood what was happening, not because they had a good understanding of what the genetics was here or the biology here, but because there were images before them that were very scary to them. And I think going back now and looking at the uh, newspaper accounts in those early days after, I guess it was March uh, 97, and uh, talk show accounts and so on and so forth, uh, I only can, I think moral panic kind of uh, is a word that comes to my mind because it was not a very well-informed debate and only gradually became informed over time. 
And as a matter of fact, my own view of the cloning debate as it's developed is that it is, will turn out to be a very interesting example of how a pluralistic society manages to deal with issues which are morally contested. And I think in this case, uh, unlike other cases we can mention in the bioethics area, I think there actually may in fact be some resolution of this debate, where there are many other debates, as you know, where no resolution seems possible at the moment. But we have here tonight uh, four or five distinguished uh, speakers who I think can have their own points of view, and I hope will express their own points of view here tonight, and we'll let you question them and form your own points of view before you walk out of here this evening. So let me get directly to it and introduce the first of our speakers. The first of our speakers is Professor Lee Silver, who, as many of you know, is a professor here at Princeton. I'm not quite sure which department it is. I know he's in molecular biology. I think he's also in ecology and evolutionary behavior, and he has some kind of arrangement with the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, I haven't figured that out yet, but I know he teaches a course there on human genetics, reproduction, and public policy. Uh, he is a co-editor with Ian Wilmot of the new journal that's coming out called Cloning Science and Policy. And of course, his latest book, Remaking Eden, How Genetic Engineering and Cloning Will Transform the American Family, is widely read and even more widely discussed uh, in both, I think it's fair to say, from talk shows to lectures like this one here. So it's a great pleasure for me to welcome Lee. Lee, it's wonderful to have you here this evening. Lee Silver. Thank you, Harold, for the introduction. Uh, so in the brief period of time that I have up here, I dropped my watch. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm going to give you an answer to a different question than the one posed in the uh, poster that we all saw, was the poster said, do we want it? I'm going to suggest to you that it doesn't matter what we want, I think it's going to happen. And I'm going to explain to you why that is the case. I'm going to do it because I'm a biologist. I need slides as a crutch. And so I'm going to give the first slide right now, unlike social scientists who are able to work without slides, uh, on the first slide, which I can't see. Um, cloning is a aspect of a whole new series of technologies, which I refer to as reprogenetic technologies. Is it possible to turn the lights down on the screen? Oh, that, that's fine. That sense, that looks good. And I'm using the term reprogenetics to describe um, the situation when people try to choose what genes go into their children. And cloning is one aspect of many, many technologies. In fact, I think ultimately it'll probably be a minor component of the whole uh, a panel of reprogenetic technologies that will be available to, to, to people. And um, the reason that reprogenetics, I think, will be a very powerful force in the future is two. <clears> that <throat> based on two very, very powerful forces that operate within most members of our species. The first is the powerful force to have biological children, and the second is a powerful force to advantage one's children. Cloning really focuses on the first, on the first of these two um, forces more than uh, the other one. The powerful desire to have biological children, I think, is what's going to drive the use of this technology. So the questions that are uh, considered when one asks whether cloning could provide people with an alternative method of reproduction, the first question that people ask is, could the technology be used safely? And I think that everybody in the country, except for Richard Seed, would argue that until we can answer this, this question, the technology should not be used. I don't think there's a debate about that. 
Um, but let's get to the question is, could the technology be used safely? Nobody has a specific answer to that question right now. But the very fact that this sheep could be born, and she is absolutely certifiably a clone, and she is also certifiably healthy, as far as we can tell, and fertile. She's actually given birth to uh, baby lambs. The fact that this animal can exist suggests that cloning can be done safely if we can figure out exactly what it took to get this animal born as opposed to the various embryos that never made it forth uh, to birth. So I would argue that um, if there's uh, enough drive for this technology, and I believe that the drive will come from the marketplace, if the marketplace drives this technology strongly enough, the technologist will respond by figuring out how to use this technology in a way that produces children without a chance of, uh, of birth defects, which is what everybody's worried about right now. Um, so the next question is, um, I'm going to eliminate question two for a moment, just go to question three, is are all or some uses of this technology unethical? The second question is, why would somebody want to use this technology? But let's ask the question of whether or not this technology is unethical. I'm up here presenting one point of view, I should say. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything that I'm saying right now, but I'm going to give you an extreme point of view. Um, the one thing that somebody's mentioned, uh, uh, quite a number of people have mentioned, is that cloning violates a person's right to a unique identity. This is what Daniel Callahan, who's the uh, director of the Hastings Center in New York, suggests. Um, and I think it's important, this is what people think cloning does. And I would actually condemn not the uh, print media as much as the television media because all of the portrayals of Dolly in the television world after Dolly was announced back in February of 1997 all had false images associated with them. They had images of the movie Multiplicity, which is, this is what happens in Multiplicity. The uh, lead character gets uh, cloned and replicated into a number of individuals who are the same age, same memory, same consciousness, or they had uh, images from Boys from Brazil or from Frankenstein, those kinds of images. They needed images, and they brought forth all these false fictional images. It's no, it's, there's no, absolutely not a question as to why most people in the public have this false image of cloning, because most people out there in the public get their news from television rather from the print media, which actually was more responsible about uh, uh, what was going on with this technology. Now, this is the reality. Uh, this is a picture I love to show to people. I just gave a lecture this morning at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory to 40 federal judges, and I asked them if they had to choose. If they saw me walking down the street with these two boys, would they think there was anything strange? There is something strange here because one of these children could be my clone. It's actually a picture of me when I was at a younger age. And the other is a picture of my son. And I asked the judges this morning, I said, could they distinguish if they had to guess, if they had to judge, which one was me at a younger age and which one was my son? The point I was trying to make, my son doesn't even look very much like me. People say he looks like my wife. The point I was trying to make is that it's very difficult. In fact, over half of the judges got it wrong. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to vote here, but just for your information, the child on the left is my son and the child on the right is me at a younger age. Mostly, usually it's about 30% who get it um, uh, wrong and 70% who get it right. But the point is that when a child is born with this technology, nobody will know it because every day there are children born who happen to look very much more like one parent than my son looks like me. And so then the question becomes, well, will clone children be harmed by knowing their future? This is what people say. This, unfortunately, is due to a much exaggerated sense of what genes 
do in influencing, I love to use that word here because of Norton sitting in the front row, of genes influencing who we become. And as a geneticist, I can tell you that most people have an exaggerated view of what genes do. Again, looking at my son and me, I asked the question of how my clone's future would be any more restricted than my son's future. I have asthma, my son has asthma, my clone would probably have asthma. My son has no chance of making the National Basketball Association star team, let alone any basketball team. My clone would have no chance of being on a basketball team. Uh, I'm going bald, my son might go bald. Beyond that, I can't figure out another way in which my son's, my clone's future would be any more restricted than my son's future. And so I reject that point as being due to an exaggerated sense of what genes do in determining our lives. So now the question is, why will people use this technology? And because I've only been given 10 to 15 minutes, I'm going very rapidly here, I think that ultimately it probably won't be used for, for curing most forms of infertility. I think the fertility doctors, including John down here and many of his colleagues, are going to figure out ways to allow most couples to have babies who share genetic contributions from the mother and the father. I think really there's a different category of people who will use this technology, who I show you in the first, in the first uh, point over here. Sarah Bernhardt, a famous actress in New York, just had a child, and she won't tell anybody who the father is. The father's irrelevant to her. Uh, Jodie Foster also had a child by herself where the father is irrelevant. And there are women, this is why I think I going to use this technology. Women can do it all by themselves without any man. At the moment, if a woman wants to have a child by herself, she needs a sperm donor. And uh, in the future, if this technology becomes safe and efficient, I think women are going to say to themselves, why bother with a sperm donor when I don't have to? I have no need for somebody else's genes that can bring in all sorts of unknown diseases that I don't care about. What is the advantage of bringing in unknown genes when I don't need to? And I think that's the logic that's going to go through the minds of the small number of women who decide they want to have a children without a man. I think that's what it's going to, going to be. I don't think there are going to be very many men who choose to use this technology, especially not egocentric men who want to try to achieve immortality, because what will happen is they'll clone themselves into a baby. The baby will grow up into a little boy that's six or seven years old who won't listen to them. And so they're going to not get what they thought they were going to get, because no children listen to their parents. So um, the final reasons are down here in this very rapid uh, um, uh, talk to you. Cloning is unnatural. It's meddling in God's domain, which is what a lot of people are really thinking about when they object to cloning. But what they don't consider is the fact that every time we cure a disease with medicine or we prevent a death with medicine, we are going against nature. And most people in this room will do it gladly. And so if cloning is unnatural, well, so, is most of, so are most of the other things that we do in our lives. There are other kinds of technologies which go beyond cloning that I think will be used. This is just an example of one of them. These are mice that we produce in the laboratory that have two genetic mothers. They're produced by putting together embryos uh, made by two different sets of parents. And you can imagine combining cloning technology with this embryo uh, fusion technology to allow two women to have a baby together, just as an example of using a cloning technology to give rise to a child who is not a clone, who actually have genes from both of the two women who, who uh, put their uh, genetic input into this, into this uh, child. And so I think that's my last slide, and I will stop there. Thank you. Lee, thank you very much. Uh, I must have set a record for getting amount of material. 
out in front of, I hope everyone here has a photographic memory and can file through those slides as you're thinking about it, but a number of uh, interesting issues which we'll come back to. Uh, our next speaker is a very distinguished visitor to our campus this week is Anne McLaren, whose career in medical research has been focused on developmental biology, reproductive biology, and genetics. As a principal research associate at the Welcome CRC Institute, located in Cambridge, England. And previously, she served 18 years as director of the Medical Research Council's Mammalian Development Unit. Her outstanding accomplishments have been recognized by many universities and organizations, including the Royal Society, which awarded her the Royal Medal in 1990. Uh, and it's a great, great pleasure to welcome you here to Princeton, ladies and gentlemen, Anne McLaren. Well, thank you very much, Harold, for that introduction. I'm going to use transparencies, and a lot of my material will actually be similar to what you have already heard uh, quickly and briefly from our last speaker. So perhaps uh, my presentation will give you a little more time to um, absorb the thoughts that he, he put across. But I want to start, in fact, uh, with a definition, because I like definitions. I like knowing what it is that I'm talking about. So my definition of cloning, and it's a definition that is very widely used at the moment uh, in Europe, By the way, can you hear me all right at the back? Good. Cloning is producing genetically identical organisms. But we don't just stop there because we have to define what we mean by genetically identical. And by genetically identical, I mean sharing the same nuclear gene set. And that's important, nuclear gene set because there are a few genes, like a couple of dozen, outside the nucleus in the cytoplasm of the cell. They're called mitochondrial genes. They're important. I may come back to them, but they are not involved in all cloning, and in particular, uh, Dolly does not necessarily share all her mitochondrial genes with her progenitor. I won't say her mother, because that's very confusing, her progenitor. And gene set, not genes, because you must remember that genes can change, do change, and get lost in the course of development. So you will never get two totally genetically identical organisms. And the other thing you must remember is that even if organisms are genetically identical, they are certainly not identical. And we can see that very well. One form of cloning is by embryo splitting, when an early embryo uh, is split into two, and each one develops separately. Uh, now, that can happen naturally with so-called identical twins. I happen to know that there's more than one identical twin in this audience, and others who have identical twins in their family. And we all know that identical twins are different people. But the other form of cloning, of course, is uh, what I call cell nucleus replacement, CNR for short, 
and that is the technique uh, that produced Dolly. It means taking a nucleus out of a cell, for instance, a body cell. In the case of Dolly, those cells uh, were uh, cultured in vitro for a time, but that's not necessarily so. The mice weren't. And then that nucleus is put back into an egg which has had its own genetic material removed. So that's what we mean by cloning. And cloning, of course, is very important for animal breeding. It's of economic importance. Uh, you can multiply up animals that have a good gene mix, uh, either uh, produced by selection or transgenic animals. Uh, sheep and cows by DNA injection or uh, genetic manipulation of the cells while they are being cultured in vitro, uh, which is the, uh, the objective of making, for instance, uh, Dolly to produce genetically manipulated animals, for example, to produce proteins of pharmaceutical value for humans. Cloning is also of enormous interest and importance for basic science. And that's why so many of us were very excited when uh, Dolly came along, because the fact that you, that you can take this body cell, wipe out everything that it's learnt in the course of its development from its own fertilization to its present state, wipe it out, start again, is fantastic and it raises all sorts of scientific questions about how the egg cytoplasm does it, what happens to the chromosomes and their ends, whether the mix of mitochondria is important. And now that it's been done in mice, we can hope to study some of those questions and actually find out the answers which we never could on sheep because the generation time is too long. And the answers to those questions are going to be very important for study of aging, cancer, control of gene expression, and lots more. Let's turn to implications for our own species. Now, I think it's important to distinguish very clearly between uh, what I call reproductive cloning, that is, putting this reconstructed egg back into a woman's uterus to make a fetus or to make a baby. Alternatively, there is the possibility of in vitro use of that cell nucleus replacement technology. One can produce uh, stem cells, cell lines in vitro, and by treating with certain growth factors, and we know to some extent how to do this already, uh, we can persuade those cells uh, to develop into different tissues, uh, skin or muscle tissue, nerve tissue, which could then be used uh, to treat uh, damaged tissues or organs. And the point of the technique would be that those tissues that have been developed in culture would be immunologically compatible with the patient from whom the body cell 
had been obtained. So there would be no question of rejection. The grafts would all be accepted. And uh, clinically, medically, this is a technique of enormous importance. The other possibility, uh, which actually is not cloning, but it's an important and interesting use of this cell nucleus replacement methodology, is to avoid mitochondrial diseases, defects in those little uh, organelles in the cytoplasm of the um, egg. Because you could imagine uh, a woman who was unfortunate enough to have these defective mitochondria, and they can cause life-threatening diseases, all her children will inherit her mitochondria because they all come through the egg. But if the nucleus of her egg could be taken and put into a clean, fresh, healthy, donated egg that had had its genetic material removed, that might avoid the problem. It's not cloning, and it's very important that any legislation or guidelines on cloning should distinguish between reproductive cloning and the in vitro use of that methodology, the research. Okay, then, reproductive cloning, human reproductive cloning. Lee Silver gave you uh, some uh, scenarios of who might use reproductive cloning and why. And I'll give you some of the same ones and some more. For instance, uh, a fetus which had been produced perhaps by assisted reproduction in a couple who had been pregnant, who, who had been trying to get pregnant for many, many years by IVF, and at last this much wanted pregnancy had been achieved. Perhaps the fetus implanted ectopically outside the uterus had to be removed. Maybe there was a car accident, the fetus died. Maybe the baby died by accident. They could take a nucleus from the fetus or from the baby and start again. The uh, donor may be um, kidney donor, um, whatever donor for a dying child. That's been suggested. Replacement of a child who died. And one has to remember in many of these scenarios that we'll come to later that the people may be expecting to get the same person back, the same child back, and they won't. They're genetically identical, but a different person. In fertility treatment, the couple um, either who are having IVF and want to increase their chances. Now, I don't think they're going to increase their chances by embryo splitting. But they could if this technology turns out to be safe eventually and effective. They could increase their chances by taking an embryo at the 8 cell or 16 cell stage taking the nuclei out of each of those cells, putting them into donated 
eggs which have had their own genetic material removed, and then they would have perhaps in free storage eight or 16 embryos that they could try for a pregnancy with. But supposing both partners were, or one, one partner, supposing one partner was totally infertile, no germ cells at all, then one of the partners could be, could be cloned and that would be a possible scenario which is attractive. The uh, self-cloning that Lee mentioned, do it yourself. Now this would be uh, for a heterosexual woman perhaps who hasn't found a man that she wants to share her life with and doesn't fancy a one-night stand or in donor insemination as a method of getting pregnant. She could use her own eggs, she could use her own uterus. Do it yourself. He also described the way in which a lesbian couple could have a child that actually is not a clone. It's a so-called chimera between two early embryos produced by CNR, by cell nucleus replacement, and I've termed uh, such a child a clonera. So you could have cloneras, and they would combine the features of the uh, two partners, lesbian partners, in a very similar way, judging by what happens in mice, to what would happen with fertilization. Then, of course, one has the uh, elderly millionaire. I think he's usually male, who um, <laughs> has a desire for immortality. Then we have the uh, desire to reproduce uh, Picasso or Einstein or whoever. And then, of course, there's the science fiction, there's the multiple cloning for political ends, which science fiction writers, boys from Brazil, are so beloved of. Okay, ethical objections. Well, first and foremost, again, like Lee Silver said, safety. People say, okay, IVF was very low, very inefficient, very low success rate in its early days, but there's a deeply important difference. IVF produced no abnormalities, many failures, 0% success rate for years, but no abnormalities because anything you do to a pre-implantation embryo, either it fails completely or it's okay. It's not the same with cloning, with cell nucleus replacement. You have abnormalities, fetal death, babies dying at birth, babies born abnormal. Now that is totally unacceptable ethically. There are also resource implications. You would need many donors, many surrogates. So one is really only concerned with the future if, and it's a big if, if and when uh, the technique is made both safe and efficient. So turning to other ethical objections then, uh, and 
Lee listed a lot of them. I've lumped all the philosophical ones together, and I'm not going to go into them in detail because I think later speakers will. A commodification, eugenic, it's unnatural, it's contrary to human dignity, whatever that means. It's a denial of privacy. Uh, there's a right to uniqueness. Tell that to identical twins. Now, I don't think any of those in, in themselves is tremendously overwhelmingly strong, though some people may feel so. Together, they may make a case. There are psychological objections. In the copying scenarios, where the person copying in quotes, because we know it's not a copy, but the person who is the progenitor already has a personality, whether it's a, 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 an older child or an adult, then it could be that the child will have a very heavy weight of expectation on it. And of course, in the Picasso-Einstein scenario, that would be very great indeed, and I wouldn't envy such a child. Identity problems, there are psychological problems that identical twins, monozygotic twins, have, but it's mainly due, so the psychologists say, to their upbringing and not to their genetic identity. But there are also social problems, and these are problems really of public policy. They're not ethical problems. But there is no doubt that if cloning became at all common, there would be enormous problems concerned with family structure and with inheritance laws. And at least in my country at the moment, the great majority of people do not want to see reproductive cloning introduced. And it's my belief that any form of assisted reproduction, it would be very unwise to go ahead with unless it was acceptable to a substantial proportion of the society in which you're working. If scientists try and plug applications of their science which are not wanted by the society in which they're working, well, they're asking for trouble. So it seems to me that although I have no objections a priori to cloning as such, nonetheless, I think one should be extraordinarily cautious in introducing it while there is still any safety question. I think it will be quite a long time before the safety requirement is satisfied. And I think it will be my grandchildren or possibly my great-grandchildren who then have to consider what their ethical attitude is. It may be that social norms will have changed. Morals are matters for individuals, but ethics are very responsive to social norms. I would not want to be tied by my grandparents' Victorian ethics, still less by medieval ethics. I have no idea what my grandchildren will want, but I'm happy to leave it to them. Thank you.
As you already know from the speakers that have spoken, there are a number of legal issues involved in the issue of cloning, and those issues uh, take on a special flavor here in the United States, given the issues as to what uh, issues that surround the constitutionality of any proposed uh, regulations or bans or any other kind of restrictions on uh, cloning or any other issues in the in reproductive area. And John A. Robertson, who is the Vincent Elkins Chair, the, holds the Vincent Elkins Chair at the University of Texas Law School at Austin, has been one of the most articulate spokesmen on this issue. Uh, he has uh, written and lectured extensively, of course, not only on this issue, but law and bioethical issues more broadly, as the author of The Rights of the Critically Ill and Children of Choice, Freedom of New Reproductive Technologies. A uh, very distinguished uh, legal scholar, he serves as co-chair of the Ethics Committee of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Uh, John, it's a great pleasure to welcome you here to Princeton. Good evening, and thank you for that introduction and uh, for having me here. It is a great pleasure indeed to be on this panel. Uh, I am going to deviate a bit from the usual legal mode of presentation. Um, I have a few slides that I like. I think it would be helpful for an evening talk um, to have some visual images up there. So we have the first slide. I hit four. Oops. Um, okay. Um, well, the emergence of the cloning debate has resulted from the technical ability to trans transfer nuclei cytoplasm between cells and create new individuals or entities as a result. Now, obviously, this is an important scientific development with a lot of potential benefits, but it's also highly troubling. And I think one of the reasons that it is so troubling for people is that it's a harbinger of the future of genetic alteration and control that lies before us, and we, we don't know how to deal with it yet. Cloning is the stalking horse of that, if you will. The challenge with cloning and all these other techniques is how to reap their benefits um, uh, while minimizing the harm that some of them might cause. Um, and it seems to me that um, a lot of clarity uh, will be gained and a lot of time saved in thinking both about cloning and other genetic alteration techniques if we keep two different models of cloning and genetic alteration in mind and clearly separate them. Model one would be cases where sexual reproduction, either coital or non-coital through assisted reproductive techniques, sexual reproduction is not feasible for a couple that wants to have a healthy biologically related child to, to rear. Uh, it seems to me that this model of cloning is defensible. It falls within the procreative liberty of, of couples. And the kinds of uses that I have in mind here are to overcome gametic infertility, say, in lieu of a sperm donor, or couples who are carriers of severe genetic disease, Tay-Sachs, cystic fibrosis, who uh, might, uh, uh, might consider using, uh, uh, again, a gamete donor, but would prefer to have offspring with uh, some biological connection with each of them. Or indeed, if they've already had, had a healthy child, not take the risk of 
having another child who won't be healthy and might choose to uh, clone such a child. And then there would also be uses of trying to get matched tissue for transplant for an existing child uh, or eventually for oneself, though that latter use would probably involve uh, reaping uh, stem cells uh, from the embryo level and would not lead to the result. Uh, would not lead to the birth of a of a new 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 child. These uh, model one uses, as I say, are very defensible. A strong claim can be made for them, and they have to be carefully distinguished from the model two uses, uh, which are cases where sexual reproduction uh, is possible for someone to have a healthy biologically related child. But for various reasons of uh, narcissism or eugenics or efficiency, they choose to eschew that sexual reproduction and instead clone or use genetic alteration techniques because of their interest in having a genome of a certain sort. This is a very different kind of set of uses, uh, the kinds that we've seen discussed early on in the cloning debate. The, the uh, narcissist who wants to duplicate self, perhaps for reasons of immortality, or uh, which were said, uh, eugenic reasons, wanting to have a child. Uh, I recently read an essay by the noted federal judge, Richard Posner, who uh, explored the idea of trying to have a child with the fittest genes possible and used cloning for that purpose. And then there would be uh, efficient reasons uh, as well to produce uh, reliable copies of desirable genomes a la Huxley in Brave New, New World. Well, the point here is that all of these uses are very different than the Model 1 uses. It seems to me that the claim of a right to use them cannot be sustained to the same extent that it can be with, with, with Model 1. And the important thing is not to get the Model 2 uses confused with the Model 1 uses. Um, if we can keep them separate, I think we have some hope of working our way through here. That now, of course, there will be many uses which are difficult to classify. The idea of using cloning to replace a dying child when one could coitally reproduce another child, I have difficulty classifying that in Model 1. Um, uh, or the idea of gay-lesbian cloning when uh, sexual reproduction would be possible, but for various reasons, the gay or lesbian couple want to uh, be sure that their offspring uh, have a... Have genes perhaps for homosexuality as well. I have trouble classifying that as well. I'm not prepared now to know whether to put them in Model 1 or Model 2. I think an argument for putting them in Model 2 exists. But I think the important point here is that the uncertainty we feel in the face of these cases is typical of the new repro genetics where we have the ability to choose or alter genes. We're uncertain now. We're still in the process of working through health to, to deal with them, and that kind of uncertainty will continue for some time. Well, let's come back to Model 1. Um, the uses here treat infertility, prevent genetic disease, get matched tissue for transplant, are the sorts of things that we do now uh, with a variety of reproductive and medical techniques. It seems to be cloning is simply an extension of them. I'm not going to go into detail about the exact continuity because of time, but when, when you sort it through, cloning for the Model 1 uses becomes extremely difficult to distinguish from many current, widely used, safe and effective assistive re reproductive tech techniques, from, from ICSI and assisted hatching to cytoplasmic donations. Um, and it is also very difficult, uh, I would submit, to distinguish from common modes of genetic 
selection that now go on through carrier screening, prenatal diagnosis and abortion, and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Now, of course, there are some discontinuities with current practices as well. Cloning involves more clearly choice rather than chance in the resulting genome of offspring, and indeed it's a choice of the full uh, nuclear genome um, uh, rather than picking a particular gene. Uh, and, and it also involves a positive means of selection rather than selection by exclusion. But I'm not sure that really makes any difference in how we end up treating uh, cloning because it seems to me just part of the continuum of techniques trying to enable a couple, a married couple, to have healthy biologically related children for, for rearing. So my first conclusion is that when we sort through these issues, we will see that model one uses of cloning really are exercises of procreative or family autonomy and should be treated the same as other procreative decisions, which come to us clothed with constitutional status and protection, which means that they are presumptively protected as the right of couples unless one can show that they are directly harmful. So we do have to turn to the issue of harm. And here the question then uh, would be, does the presumptive right uh, to use cloning to achieve the Model 1 goals, which I claim are defensible, do they nevertheless involve such harms that there should be a restriction on the liberty of couples to achieve uh, those goals? And when you boil down all the arguments against cloning, uh, and sort through them, it seems to me that they come down to two key issues. One is the claim that by cloning uh, someone and creating a child who's a clone of someone else uh, is the claim that somehow you're harming them because they have the same nuclear DNA as another person. And the second, uh, uh, the, the, the second claim would be, well, whether or not it's harming them from having the same nuclear DNA as another, the very fact that you're cloning shows that you're so heavily invested in the genome rather than the person, you're ending up treating the child as a means to an end and not an end in his or, or her, herself. Let me comment briefly on each of these claims. With regard to the harm from having the same nuclear DNA, that in turn gets divided into a claim that, well, the clone is not a unique person, but we've already heard comments from Lee Silver and uh, Ann McLaren that that clearly isn't the case because of the influence of, of environment. Uh, the fact of the matter is that a clone of Silver or Robertson may look like Silver or Robertson, but clearly will not be Silver or, or Robertson, will, will be a, a new and unique person, even though there's a great similarity in some of the DNA. Um, um, similarly, with the claim of lack of an open future, here it assumes that not only that everyone will know who the clone source was, who the source of the DNA was, and what their life was like, but furthermore that the parents who are rearing this child will have the intention of having the child replicate to the greatest extent possible the source of DNA. Well, that doesn't strike me as a reasonable assumption. Parents using a, a Model 1 cloning technique to have a healthy a uh, he healthy child biologically related to, to, uh, to them, uh, it seems to me, would be interested in having a child that has his or her own interests, 
character, and thus I find it unlikely that they would be denying them the open future claim. And similarly, with regard to overvaluing the genome and treating the child as mere means, it seems to me that one can be very concerned about, uh, about having a child with a particular set of genes, not because the genes themselves are so important, but because of the kinship tie which they inevitably create and because of the cultural meanings which that kinship tie carries in our society. So, so the interest in cloning then isn't so much of using the child as a means as in maintaining or having that genetic connection that we have in offspring that is otherwise not available to uh, couples using the Model 1 approach uh, by other means. So uh, I would conclude from that that uh, n not only do the harms not outweigh the benefits, but that the benefits for couples who have to resort to Model 1 uh, uses are, are very strong indeed, and thus would argue very strongly against a policies of prohibition, of cloning. Indeed, I would argue that such policies would be unconstitutional if we properly understand procreative liberty, and as a result, both a permanent prohibition of cloning should be unacceptable, and to my view, even a time-limited ban is, is, is unacceptable, first because there's uh, no real need for it at the moment. No one is about to clone now just because of the safety considerations. And what a time-limited ban comes down to is really a form of symbolic legislation. And symbolic legislation has costs as well, and there could be very serious costs to, to uh, biomedical and genetic uh, research from uh, from legislating on symbolic grounds when there's no real danger at, at the time. And so what I think we should be talking about is not whether cloning should be permitted or prohibited, or we should talk about that and get beyond it to realize that cloning perhaps should be available. But what we should be talking about are the kinds of issues we would want to regulate if cloning became available. And let me suggest the sorts of things that we should be concerned about once the science and the technology makes cloning safe and effective. Obviously, we want to assure the health and safety of the procedure, but we also want couples embarking on this to be fully informed both of the physical risks and also the psychological dangers involved. So there should be some, heavily counseling, uh, some heavy counseling involved before any couple proceeds with, uh, with, with cloning, so they're well aware of the kinds of psychological complexities which could arise and are equipped to deal with it. Also, there should be the consent of the clone source. The person providing the DNA should clearly have a, a right, uh, in most cases, uh, to object or not. This may pose a special problem if you're cloning a child. We can talk about uh, later. But there should be a general presumption in favor of consent of the clone source. We will also have to clarify the rearing rights and duties in the resulting child if one person is providing the uh, enucleated egg, the cytoplasm, another, the nucleus, and uh, depending on who then is gestating and what the agreement is among the parties for resulting uh, rearing rights and duties in the child, that will have to be recognized both uh, by contract among the parties and by law. And of course, there should perhaps be some limits on the number of clones, um, not because we would necessarily get people confused, but because of a sense of at least moderation here, at least at the beginning, as this technology uh, gets going, and, and it may also be possible or desirable to have limits on who may be cloned. An example that jumps out to my mind is perhaps you shouldn't be able to clone your parents, even with their consent, because of the 
of, of the strangeness of that in terms of our common understanding of having a, a family of a new generation. So it seems to me that reg regulation can take care of many of the problems of, uh, of cloning that have been discussed. And so I will conclude by saying then that the tensions and conflicts raised by the prospect of human cloning and which are likely to last for some time to come are the problems of adapting to the new technology of genetic alteration that is upon us that we will have to deal with, but which raises central issues that will take some time in working out. However, in working through these issues, it is important to remember the need to respect procreative liberty while taking action to minimize harms. And it seems to me under that approach, there's a very strong case indeed for recognizing Model 1 uses of cloning as a valid option for couples who are interested in forming and maintaining families. Thank you very much. Our final speaker tonight is Bonnie Steinbach, is a professor of philosophy and chair of the department at the University of Albany, State University of New York. She is the author and editor of a number of textbooks in the area of bioethics, including Ethical Issues in Modern Medicine and New Ethics for the Public's Health, which will be published by Oxford University Press uh, next year. She has participated in a wide number of collaborative projects dealing with bioethical issues and was a member of Governor, or was appointed by Governor Cuomo to the State Task Force and the Governor's Healthcare Advisory Board, which has produced some very interesting and stimulating reports. Uh, Professor Steinbach, it's wonderful to have you here at Princeton. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Steinbach. I, too, am very honored to be here, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, my task, my assigned task was not to canvas uh, all the ethical issues, but to pick out the ones that I thought were most important. And so the two that I want to uh, focus on, the two issues that I think uh, really stand out in all the discussions about cloning, uh, one is scientific and the other is ethical. The scientific issue is genetic determinism. The National Bioethics Advisory Commission usefully defined genetic determinism as the belief that genes alone determine all aspects of an individual. In part, genetic determinism is the result of the greater knowledge we've had in recent years of the role genes play in diseases such as cystic fibrosis, Alzheimer's disease, and breast cancer, and to a lesser extent and more controversially in behavioral traits. Uh, the other part, I think, for the reason for the uh, belief in genetic determinism, it comes from just a swing of the pendulum. Um, it's a reaction to the prevailing view in past decades that virtually all behavior and a lot of disease is caused by environmental factors. For example, autism, today regard, regarded as a brain disorder, a complicated brain disorder, but a brain disorder, uh, used to be thought to be caused by rejection of the infant by a cold, unloving mother. Homosexuality was supposed to be the result of a smothering, possessive mother. Whatever the condition, it was attributable to bad mothering. 
But if an overemphasis on environmental causes is wrong, it's equally wrong to think that if you know what your genome is, you know what kind of an individual you will be. Uh, we are not our genes, and our genes do not determine what we are or will be. Now, it never ceases to amaze me how many intelligent and educated people fall into the trap of genetic determinism. In the introduction to their excellent collection, Clones and Clones, Martha Nussbaum and Cass Sunstein, no slouches in the intelligence department, write, what about a National Basketball Association filled with teams of Michael Jordans? Would that still be the same game? Or wouldn't the limits of the human body against which talented athletes strive lose their meaning when we could just make another Michael Jordan any time we wanted to? Well, I have no idea what it would do to the game of basketball if we could make another Michael Jordan any time we wanted to. But I am confident that this is something we could not do, and certainly not do, simply by cloning a cell from Michael Jordan's body. Now, that we couldn't just create another Michael Jordan any time we wanted to should be apparent from the example given at least twice already tonight of identical twins. Um, identical twins not only share all the same genes, mitochondrial as well as nuclear, they also are gestated in the same womb at the same time and are usually raised in the same family. And despite all of this, they're not exactly alike, either in personality or even looks for people who get to know them. And one is certainly not a substitute for another. Despite this, one possible use of cloning that's been brought up is the cloning of a dead or dying child. Now, I don't doubt that an unscrupulous company could prey on grieving couples, offering them a chance not to lose their beloved child. But it seems to me incumbent on scientists and bioethicists alike to remind people that the clone would not be their dead child, but only a genetic twin. Do parents who lose a twin find comfort in the survival of the other twin? Well, no doubt, but no more, I suspect, than parents of non-twins. That might be an argument for having more than one child. It's no argument for cloning, unless there was no other way the parents could have another child. People who speculate about being able to clone a beloved dog or cat or child may find the thought of cloning marvelous. Those who worry about the future of basketball or the creation of an army of Hitlers may find it terrifying. But both are in the grip of the fallacy of genetic determinism, which makes intelligent discussion about the pros and cons of human cloning impossible. Now, the other issue I want to address is the kind of ethical argument that's often used against uh, cloning in particular, but more generally against any kind of technical or social innovation. And basically, this argument takes the form, this would be totally different, therefore, this would be bad or in the case of Dolly, that, no, couldn't resist. There's no, <laughs> there's no question that somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning, sent cloning, would be a totally new way of making babies if it were successful. And for some people, that's the argument against it. So I was on um, NewsHour with Jim Lair, and there was a theologian on with me who said about cloning, 
It's not reproduction. It's replication. It's what starfish do. Well, biologists tell me that this is inaccurate about starfish, but even if it were true, why does that make it wrong? You might as well say about lovemaking, it's not replication, it's reproduction, it's what rats do. <laughs> but maybe, charitably, there is an implicit argument in the rejection of replication, namely that a clone is deprived of what may seem to be a basic human right, and I don't think this one actually has been mentioned so far tonight, the right to have human parents. This idea was expressed by John Cardinal O'Connor, who said, by design, a clone technically has no human parents. Hence, creating a clone violates the dignity of human procreation, the conjugal union, marriage, and the right to be conceived and born within and from marriage. A clone is a product made, not a person begotten. Well, I think we should be very careful about characterizing human beings as products, not persons. Personhood, I maintain, is not determined by the method of your birth. There may be good reasons to ban or regulate various technology, but whatever those reasons are, it's not that the offspring would fail to be human persons. In any event, is Cardinal O'Connor right that a clone would not have human parents? Imagine the following scenarios, which has been briefly alluded to, I think, tonight. A couple can't have children due to severe male factor infertility, and somatic cell nuclear transfer uh, cloning has been perfected and found to be safe. So rather than use donated sperm, bringing a third party into the marriage, they decide to take a somatic cell from the husband to obtain his DNA and to put it in the wife's nucleated egg cell. Uh, she then gestates the resulting embryo and gives birth to this baby. Now when they take that baby home from the hospital, I defy anyone to say that that child lacks human parents. The mother is the woman who carried him, gave birth to him, and is going to share in rearing him. His father is the man whose genetic material he shares and who is also going to share in the rearing of that child. The man in this story has at least as much claim to be the baby's father as if the couple had used a sperm donor, a recognized and accepted technique. I rather suspect that some of the objections to human cloning are not targeted at cloning in particular, but are rather aimed at non-traditional families in general. For example, a commentator, uh, Brian Brown, uh, wrote in the Wall Street Journal, cloning represents another assault on the traditional family. The traditional family, that is, a mother and a father and 1.8 children. But that's not the only kinds of families we have today. There are blended marriages with step-parents and stepchildren. There are single parents raising children. There are homosexual couples who have children. Some children are adopted. Some are born of surrogate arrangements. Some are conceived through gamete donation. There are lots of ways to have children and form a family that do not conform to the Leave it to Beaver model. And I think it's these non-traditional families that conservative commentators like Brian Brown are objecting to. Um, he thinks that liberals who have accepted all of this other stuff now have no ground to object to cloning and writes, the elite that dominates Western societies has pushed to normalize a whole range of acts that were once considered outrageous. And without shock or shame, there's little left to trigger moral outrage. No one expedited this corrosion more than the shock troops of the 1960s who normalized shameful acts like promiscuous sex and drug use by ostentatiously promoting them 
Now these very baby boomers decry the resulting social ills from high levels of illegitimacy to drug-driven crime without acknowledging their contribution to them. Well, I think what he's getting at is that um, uh, human cloning is objectionable for the same reason that single mothers, lesbian, gays, marijuana, and probably working women uh, is objectionable. I don't think serious consideration of the pros and cons of cloning has anything to do with this kind of right-wing raving. Uh, in any event, it's far from clear to me why technologies that enable people to have children constitute an attack on family values. Finally, there is the yuck factor, as it is technically known in bioethics. Many people find the idea of cloning simply viscerally repugnant. Lawrence Tribe, who's against banning cloning, nevertheless describes it as a, quote, most distasteful, perhaps even diabolical method of reproducing human life. And Leon Cass, on the other side, who's called for a permanent international ban on cloning, suggests that this repugnance, while not an argument, is, quote, the emotional expression of deep wisdom beyond reason's power fully to articulate it. Well, I confess that I don't have tribes or castes visceral reaction to cloning, at least not in the scenario I, I just outlined. I don't see why scent cloning would be worse than sperm donation, and I don't see why either would be morally wrong. But that doesn't mean that I think it's okay to create a child by any means necessary. And I want to end with um, a recent story in the newspaper about a woman in Nevada who wanted to create a child by artificially inseminating herself with sperm taken from the body of her son who had recently committed suicide. Now there I do have a decided yuck reaction. Or as my cleaning woman said, ew. But we shouldn't stop with a yuck, weren't you? What's wrong with this story is first that the dead man did not consent to having his gametes used to create a child, nor is there any reason to think that he would have consented if he had been asked. I suspect he too would have said, ew. Gametes are not public property to be used by anyone who wants or needs them. We have a right to decide whether or not to procreate, to become parents, a right that I think does not evaporate when we die. If anything, it seems to me it's stronger. And second, there's something profoundly upsetting about a woman who wants to be inseminated with her son's sperm. She's not his wife, who might be thought to have a legitimate claim if the couple had planned to have children together. And mothers are not supposed to reproduce with their sons. This, I think, really would shake the foundations of family life in a way that no reproductive technology, not even cloning, would. So I think that the acceptability of any potential reproductive technology depends on the intentions and motivations with which is done, as well as with the harms and benefits likely to result. These harms need not be strictly observable or empirical. They might be intangible, symbolic, or spiritual, but they do have to be articulated and made persuasive to people with a range of moral and philosophical beliefs. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Let me invite tonight's speaker and John Gordon to please come sit up here, find one of the seats on the podium here.
and we will just make one comment while you're speaking this Steinbach's comment that uh, something new or different is ba uh, for sheep. At the first meeting we had of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission dealing with the issue of cloning, it was disrupted by a whole group of people coming in dressed up as sheep and baaing all over the place for, for three quarters of an hour before we could get our meeting together. Well, let me see, first of all, I, uh, if the panel uh, has questions for each other. I'm going to have a very limited amount of time for that because, one, I have some questions. <laughs> and two, uh, I want to really give an opportunity for the audience to ask questions. But let me turn to any members of the panel to see if they would like, uh, first of all, spend a few minutes seeing if there are questions that they have for each other. Any members? Yes, Anne. Is this live? Oh, pull it towards you. Let's see. It's supposed to be on. Okay. I have a question for John Robertson, because he was against banning prohibition of reproductive cloning, and I, I greatly admire the confidence that he must have in his clinical colleagues, because my experience of uh, assisted reproduction practitioners <coughs> is that sometimes they're prepared to try out new things before the safety aspect has been fully satisfied. And my experience of infertile couples is that they are desperate to try any means to reproduce. And the European philosophy is much more to prohibit reproductive cloning in order to allow the in vitro research to go ahead without any prohibition. The risk is otherwise that everything gets banned. Are you quite sure that, one can, that you can control in this country the safety of possible attempts at cloning without prohibition? Uh, well, yes, I am because of the interest of a couple under Model 1 in having healthy offspring. They're not interested in trying cloning if there's a, a, a great chance that uh, there'll be a, a bad outcome, um, uh, a damaged offspring in some, some way. I think just the, the good sense of, of couples and the good sense of doctors providing the services uh, will make them uh, be cautious about this until there's some reasonable basis to think that it will work out all right. So, so I don't think that you need prohibition to stop people from doing it be, before it's safe and effective. Sure, there may be a few outliers who will try anything, but I can uh, say this, that the assisted reproduction industry in the U.S. is so uncomfortable by the prospect of cloning and the fact that it may bring more governmental intervention uh, into their activities that it seems to me they will be very cautious and responsible uh, be, before going ahead with this until a good case uh, can be made for it being safe and effective. Thank you, and I do hope you're right. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Gordon. I just don't know if I can formulate this as a question in order to obey the rules, but I do have a comment about some of the issues that I don't think were completely addressed. 
One is the treatment of cloning, use of cloning as a treatment for infertility of one partner. I would just like to reassert that the cloning of a male leaves the female contributing nothing significant genetically to the offspring, and therefore this is the equivalent to her of ovum donation, and that the cloning of a woman is the equivalent to the husband or the male partner of, uh, of male gamete donation. Now, it has been suggested in a couple of the presentations tonight that one would prefer cloning to gamete donation for safety reasons. You don't have to have these uh, unknown genetic factors entering your children. We'll leave out the narcissism one for now. Um, but let me just remind the speakers as well as the audience that there is a very successful scientific effort underway to characterize the human genome in detail and to understand exactly what kind of genetic risks are impending with, with a person's gametes. And I would submit to you that a long time before cloning is ready for use in humans, by responsible people that is, a greater under, great understanding will be known of what kind of genes you're getting with the gametes that you receive in gamete donation and that you may very well do better to receive gam donor gametes than to clone from a health standpoint. You could reduce your risk of certain diseases. You could even engage in certain types of enhancement. The moral aspects of that can be discussed. But the matter of fact is that in terms of reducing any of these theoretical options to practice, I view that as far more likely in the near future uh, than the use of cloning. I, yeah, I wanted to. I want to respond to to John's comment. I, I think you're probably right about that. When we know something more about the genome, I think that there's another consideration that people will have against gamete donation, which has nothing to do with disease. That has everything to do with the contribution of genes to the child, and just the sense of not wanting to put foreign genes in, no matter what they do, into their child when they don't need to. I mean, as you well know, people spend huge amounts of money to try to attempt to put their own genes into their children using in vitro fertilization when artificial insemination is, is possible and a hell of a lot cheaper. Uh, just a brief response. First of all, many people do. After this, there'll be no more responses. Right. But, uh, <laughs> many, many people do select gamete donation and are deliriously happy with gamete donation, let me say. And I think another reminder here is that remember, that when you're cloning, one of the parents, from their point of view, you have done nothing different from gamete donation. That person is contributing nothing genetically to the child. There's no genetic relationship to the child. So cloning is a special form of assisted reproduction. Now, I'm not saying I'm against cloning. I do want to make one point, though, that when a physician approaches a patient with choices like these, it's incumbent upon that physician to have to make sure the patient understands completely what kind of risks and what kind of benefits and what kind of success rates they're dealing with. Right now, sperm donation costs $500 a cycle and has a nearly 20% success rate. It's very effective. Thank you. Any other questions from members of the panel on another topic? Dr. Silver? Well, I'm sorry I have to talk to uh, Dr. Robertson again. I was surprised that you were willing, because, I'm sorry, you were willing to accept cloning for heterosexual couples. Um, but not for um, homosexual couples in the similar situation where it seems to me that you would be uh, in favor of forcing a homosexual lesbian couple, for example, of using gamete donation rather than cloning themselves, where you appear to be willing in your model one to accept a heterosexual couple of using cloning um, rather than gamete donation. 
Well, uh, let's say that the issue is is in process. We're working our way through it. Uh, your zeal with which you go to uh, each uh, member of the lesbian couple producing a clone of themselves and then making a mosaic seems tremendously complex to me. Why can't one provide the egg and the other the gestation? Why won't that satisfy much of the need of such couples? Uh, and uh, so I, I'm 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 unclear why kind of traditional I don't want to say traditional here that's that's the wrong word but other modes of sexual reproduction perhaps involving non-coital means won't satisfy the interest and the need of that couple or individual in having biologically related offspring to rear. It seems to me there are other ways of doing it, meeting that need without having to resort to, to cloning. Uh, thus, that's why I have some question about whether the lesbian cloning that, that you talk about in such an entertaining and interesting way, whether that really would fall in model one at the present time in my thinking about it. Let me ask a question uh, to any member of the panel. Uh, and it really came to mind, I guess also during something, John, that you said, that is you went to the issue of regulation, that is whether we ought to regulate cloning. I know you were speculating about this. I don't claim that we've, any of us have thought through. But one of the interesting things is, to me is that families are formed in different ways, and sometimes we think regulation is necessary, sometimes we don't. So there's certain kinds of adoptions which are very heavily regulated. You know, we go through all kinds of screening. We make sure parents know this, that, and the other thing. And then other kinds of uh, family formation which are unregulated altogether. And we allow anyone to do anything they happen to feel like doing. Uh, how does one approach that from the point of view of the law? Why would we say that one way of formulating families requires regulation? and others don't. This is not solely related to cloning, because we've had that issue before, but I'm just wondering if you could give us any insight from the perspective of the law of why some things we feel a need to regulate and others not in terms of family formation. Uh, well, that's, that's a, a, a very good question indeed. Let, let me first evade the question slightly by, uh, by saying that by regulation, I did not necessarily mean governmental. Right imposition of rules here. Most of the regulation that now occurs with regard to reproductive technology in the U.S. as opposed to in the U.K. is really through the self-imposed practices of the professionals providing it, through the, the shared norms that have grown, grown up. And now it's, it doesn't have the full force of law in all cases, but there are some very strong norms there. So I'm thinking of the practice patterns that, that would evolve. Uh, and the reason why there may be some more concern with cloning than perhaps with some of the other practices that go on is because we, we don't yet have full experience with it. We don't yet really know how this will affect family and rearing and other kinship relationships. So I, I would think that the medical professionals providing this might uh, be very interested in going very slow and perhaps uh, making sure that the couple that requests cloning has a very clear idea what they're, what, what they're getting into, have gone through some counseling, so they're aware of some of the possibilities which, which might, might occur. So that's the kind, of reg, uh, the kind of controls I'm talking about. With regard to the law here, I would see the law as being basically facilitative here passing legislation to clarify rearing rights and duties, perhaps having malpractice uh, remedies available if doctors deviate too much from shared uh, pra pra practices. But I'm thinking of norms coming up from 
below rather than uh, being imposed uh, from above. Thank you. Yes, Bonnie. Well, I, I think the question that was asked really was a slightly different one, which is why do we regulate some kinds of ways of having children and not others? And I, and I think the answer to that is because some of them it would be impossible to regulate without enormous intrusion into people's private lives. So, for example, we regulate adoption because we can. But if you start telling people, well, you, you know, you would be rotten parents so you can't have kids, then what are you going to do? Are you going to forcibly sterilize them? Are you going to take the kids away once they're born? I mean, we might like to do all of those things, but I think in a free society we can't. And I think similarly, we can't um, really regulate divorce and remarriage and blended families, but there might be other kinds of things be just because we can without enormous in in intervention into people's private lives and, and where we can to avoid what we consider to be harms, we might want to do so. I'm going to turn to the audience for questions now. But that's an interesting response because it means that people who are vulnerable are susceptible to being controlled in some sense. And people who aren't, aren't. That doesn't, well, we'll talk about that. Ask any adoptive <laughs> couple. Yes, I understand. <laughs> Let me, let's turn to the audience. I want to have sat very patiently and, and see the questions. Uh, if I, I'll try just pointing if you don't mind. It's a little impolite, but right here. Yes. You talk loud, you can hear well in this room. Testing. <laughs> you can hear that. Uh, just, just a couple of thoughts, and obviously some questions for the for the panel. Um, is all this really relevant? Uh, isn't it really true that if it can be done, it will be done, and if not today, tomorrow? And it makes really no difference what we say or do. There'll be a way to get around it. I mean, an example, a uh, recent Ivy League alumni magazine uh, has a special ad here. Special egg donor needed. Desperately seeking smart, sensitive, sassy Samaritan Ivy League alumni looking for a donor match. Beautiful blue or green eyes, slender build, fair skin, warm smile, Rara Avis. Compensation, $7,500 plus expenses. Sold. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it seems like there's no limit to what people will do to get what they want. And whether it's in this country, whether it's in some offshore island, whether it's in some puppet government in Africa or Central Asia, it doesn't much matter. It's going to happen. We can say what we're going to say, but it's going to happen no matter what. Once it's safe, people are comfortable to do it. I, I think it's going to happen no matter what. And as far as the Europeans being concerned about safety before they do anything, I think thalidomide is a good example of that. All right, Anne first and Lee. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, is this microphone working? Yes. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it will be done somewhere in the world. Uh, maybe two or three, three or four babies. My guess is maybe Russia, Singapore, possibly somewhere in the United States, because those are three places where there is high technical expertise, not all that much regulation, and a lot of very rich people. Now, I don't think it will be catastrophic. A lot will depend on whether the safety, the safety issues have been taken into account or whether there are abnormal 
baby is born and the media gets hold of it. But I think you're right, it will occur somewhere. Lee, briefly. Briefly, I don't actually agree with the sense of something can be done, therefore it will be done. I actually think that if something is demanded and somebody else can supply it for a reasonable amount of money, that's what will drive the technology, not simply if you can do it. There are a lot of things we can do that we don't do. But I think, yes, it will happen because the marketplace will make it happen because of demand and supply. Thank you. Over here on the aisle. Uh, yeah, just to trump that classified that you quoted, the uh, week I arrived, you know, ad in the uh, Princetonian uh, put by a couple for searching for an egg donor after 15,000 undergraduate um, Talk directly into the microphone, it'll be easier, or as, stand. As a veteran of fertility treatment, I've been very uh, depressed at the slowness of the we're not functioning. And uh, I'm pleased that all the panelists seem to be in favor of a certain um, uh, ban on prohibition, at least for certain kinds of, uh, of cloning technology. I wonder if any of them have any reflection on why fertility is such a major problem in our society at the present day. I have my own hunches about this, but doesn't it not seem extraordinary that there are, is such a desperate need for uh, medical advances in this area. Bonnie? I'm not sure it's clear that there is. I mean, the, the um, figures that we get suggest that the rate of infertility has stayed pretty much the same. What has changed is the um, media presentation of it. So we're seeing stories in Newsweek about women who have delayed childbearing and all of that. But in fact, the infertility rates are highest among poor and minority women, they're just not making the covers of Newsweek. So part of it is that, as the media presentation of it, the other is because we can do something about it in a way that we couldn't, uh, that we, we couldn't before. So there are more stories about these kinds of couples. It's not clear that there really is a greater need. Thank you. Yes, in the back. Oh, this is a question for uh, Dr. Robertson. Um, in your model number one, your third option, you indicated um, among the uh, applications you thought would be appropriate with the idea of, of developing matched tissues for transplant from embryos. Could you expand upon that a bit and could the other panelists uh, comment upon whether they, they would also include it in their model number one as appropriate? Well, uh, one of the first uh, uses proposed for cloning was a couple with a child, say, with leukemia and needed a bone marrow donor and didn't have one available, so might have a child uh, to serve as a donor. And cloning uh, would uh, assure them that they perhaps might get a correct match. If they're cloning the sick child, and if the cause of the leukemia is not genetic, cloning that child might give them a good match. The problem with that is you have to have the child you have to then intrude upon the new child to obtain bone marrow, and that can be done legally in most states uh, as long as the intrusion is not too intensive or harmful. But in the future, I think, as uh, Dr. McLaren uh, alluded to, it seems to me the real promise of cloning, and this, this may be what the real impact of cloning is, 
that will far outrace any other uses is for people to obtain stem cells or other precursor cells to replace their own tissue. This will not require reproductive cloning in the sense that a child will be uh, implanted and brought to term. It will simply mean cloning to the embryo stage and then harvesting cells there that can be directed into certain lines of, of tissue development. Now that's going to run into problems from right to lifers and others who think that embryos themselves are persons with rights. But aside from those objections, it seems to me it's probably going to be acceptable to most people if they become uh, a, a safe and effective source for tissue replacement in the future. And I think, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I entirely agree with it because I think that the in vitro culture approach is so promising and so important. I think it's very important that it doesn't get caught up in any prohibition. The risk is that people will think that it's the thin end of the wedge, the slippery slope towards reproductive cloning if they don't want reproductive cloning. And therefore, that's another argument, I think, for regulation or banning of reproductive cloning, but definitely allowing the in vitro approach to go ahead. Can I make a, just a quick comment yes. that if I find it helpful and to separate reproductive cloning, as I've said, into the Model 1 and the Model 2, if you combine both of them, then you have all those narcissistic and eugenic uses muddying up the waters and preventing us from thinking clearly about the Model 1 uses, which seem to me come to us with a much stronger claim of legitimacy. Any uses at present are uh, impossible because of the safety. The uh, well, I'd like to actually respond directly to what you said. Obviously, cloning a child, well, I think obviously everybody in this room, cloning a child for a heart transplant, most of us would consider to be entirely inappropriate, unethical. And cloning a child for a kidney transplant bothers me as well. I'm very worried about that. So it's really, I don't have an answer to that. Bone marrow is sort of the least uh, problematic because after the bone marrow transplant is done, the child has no permanent uh, harm. Just very briefly, I just want to expand a little on the potential of cell line production and cloning. Experiments of mice have suggested that it's possible to make cell lines or even organs that are universal transplantation donors by modifying their ability to be rejected by, by manipulating those genes. So it is theoretically possible, if this research went to, the, to its fruition, that one could produce a bone marrow donor cell line from a, something that started as a, as a nuclear transfer uh, embryo that could be donated to anybody and that could have genes put into it first that could confer disease resistance or to help treat other conditions. So the potential of this technology is really staggering if and when we understand fully uh, what we're doing mechanistically with the cells. Thank you. Let's try over on this side. Yes, right here by the aisle. <clears throat> I think it's uh, safe to say that uh, every, everybody in this room wants to live. And yet, when I ask myself why do I have the desire, I don't really have a good answer. And I can only finally conclude that because at the very instant I was conceived, I wanted to be born. So my question is, um, will these cloned let's say we can clone people now, will their desire to live be changed, altered, or be different in any way from what we know about ourselves today? 
Bonnie? Why should it? don't have any evidence one way or another. I don't think you had a desire to be born, by the way. I mean, I think that's a rather complex desire that would take a little bit more uh, probably conceptual um, development. I doubt very much that, um, uh, that we can talk about a desire to be born. But I want to say again that I don't think that, that whether you, you were the result of a sperm and an egg coming together in a fallopian tube or in a petri dish or whether it, you were the result of scent cloning would have any effect on the kinds of desires you had. It might have some effect that, that's unknown so far on whether there might be birth defects and that sort of thing, and, and then therefore indirectly, obviously, if there was a, a birth defect that affected your brain, you might not have any desires at all. But why we should think that that would affect what you wanted or those sorts of things, I just can't see any reason for it. We Everything we know about biology says that a, a child born by this procedure will be indistinguishable from every other human being on Earth, and that in the absence of a DNA test comparing that child's DNA to the progenitor's DNA, there is no way you would ever know that anybody was a so-called clone. Lee, you have a question? Not this Lee, that Lee. <laughs> relieved as I listen to this evening's panel uh, because the discussion sounds more and more like many others that I have heard uh, during the past uh, 30 years. Uh, whether we have talked about genetic counseling when those of us who did it in the 60s were accused of playing God, or whether it was newborn screening for phenylketonuria and, and hypothyroidism when we were accused of polluting the gene pool, or whether it was prenatal diagnosis uh, for the detection of, uh, of fetuses with Tay-Sachs disease uh, that, that brought forth uh, cries of um, uh, abortion mania and so on, or whether it was gene therapy uh, our society has been willing to live with these technologic advances and use them for medically sensible reasons. In fact, uh, I'd like to just facetiously point out that there have been some professional yuckers who have followed this debate for the last 30 years and have yucked every one of the things that I just mentioned. We're, we're, still, we're still okay in our society. Uh, because we rationally discuss them uh, in the yuckers, keep on yucking, uh, and, and we keep on doing things uh, rationally as long as we talk about them uh, and work them out for safety reasons and efficacy. So I'm, I'm happy tonight. Well, I'm glad you're happy. Let me, let me raise a, uh, a question, which I can't recall just what, what where this idea came from and amongst the talks, but I thought it was one of you were talking today. There, there was on one hand, I think, Lee, you made the claim that there was an innate uh, desire to have uh, children which were biologically related. Uh, is that, I think that was on one of your... I made that claim to stand by it. <laughs> uh, well, and, and then, of course, you also pointed out that, you know, what's really going to happen or might happen is we will genetically engineer uh, the outcome. 
And there seems to be some tension between these two things, both uh, passing on your biological uh, gene and then but not being satisfied with it and, and, and altering it in some way. So there seems to be some tension in here. I'm just, we're all trying to imagine an ex and it's an extravagant future, which is not yet here. I understand that. But how did, as you may have really given this some thought, and uh, I'd be interested to know how you, how you think about those two tensions. I'd, I'd like to respond. Um, the, the poll that I read, actually, when I was writing my book, uh, there was a poll that asked people what they wanted their children to look like. And the response that most people gave is they wanted their children to look like themselves, except a little prettier and smarter. And I think... So that's what's innate. Yeah. I see. Okay. I mean, I think that answers both aspects of that question. Yes, over here. When you bring up safety and efficacy, um, I, I think those are obviously good considerations. I, I don't know if I'm, coming from a medical perspective, I don't know if I'm convinced that we already have really well-established knowledge of the safety and efficacy of, of methods that are already in use, like IVF or in vitro fertilization or ICSI, et cetera, which might, it hasn't been around long enough for us to really know in the long term whether or not the children produced by these methods are going to have more learning disabilities or are going to have more genetic abnormalities that just aren't, are less, I mean, are more subtle than what we might know to look for already. And therefore, I'm a little bit curious about what is being done right now to sort of statistically and carefully look at the already present methods and to make sure that we're not doing more harm than good in our efforts to, to bring advancement before we move ahead with something like cloning, which might open a whole other door of diseases which we don't know how to handle. Thank you. Is there anything going on? Anne and Dr. Gordon may want to say something about that. Uh, well, I think the answer to your question is certainly not enough, but in Britain and Europe, quite a bit. In Britain, we have a statutory licensing authority so that all IVF centers have to be licensed. Every cycle is recorded, and there is a database on which every cycle, every embryo, every uh, successful pregnancy, every take-home baby is recorded. Uh, Long-term follow-up is much more difficult. It's being done for ICSI. Uh, it hasn't been done, as far as I know, for IVF. It's very expensive, but it is being done uh, in some circumstances uh, in France, for example, and to a small extent in Sweden, and in Britain for uh, ICSI. But as far as uh, to term goes, to birth, uh, there is, everything is, is recorded and it's there. Dr. Gordon? Yeah, I just want to make a, a brief comment to that. First of all, I want to say that I didn't want to be born and I'm very angry that my parents forced, <laughs> <laughs> forced me to be alive. <clears throat> I think that the issue here isn't whether we should have not done ICSI or done ICSI or IVF. The issue is, at what point do you take the step of doing an invasive medical procedure in a human being? And I think that there's an orderly process one engages in that brings them to that threshold. If you look at things like cardiac transplantation or even the mechanical heart, which turned out to be a failure, there's a solid basis of animal experimentation and an effort to make an assessment of safety and efficacy in as good a model as we can possibly get. When IVF had a very strong history in animal experimentation as being efficient, 
and being safe and being effective. So we don't have that for cloning. On the contrary, the animal experiments would say otherwise at this point. But I think that uh, one can't be afraid to engage in human experimentation, but at the same time, one cannot be too uh, cavalier about when to take that step. I think, in, obviously, in the era of cloning, we're not at that, at that point right now. I want to add one little very brief thing about reproductive technologies, which anyone who's been engaged in it will second, I'm sure. It's a funny thing is that when people are infertile and they face a very complex problem that's critical to their lives, they tend to believe that the more complex procedure you offer them to solve it, the more convinced they become that it will be effective rather than what they should think, which is it's less likely to be effective. And why is this? Because every step that you're telling them you're taking, you have a rationale for it. It's logical. It makes some sense to you, and you can convince them that it makes sense to them. And because of that, the more intricate it becomes, the more attractive it can become, and the physician can fall, uh, can, fall uh, can be prone to mischaracterizing a, a patient's true uh, choice options in terms of value and effectiveness and, and chance of success because of this penchant for uh, uh, a natural predilection for thinking that the, the more involved something may be, the more likely it is to work. That's quite the contrary in, uh, in the reproductive technologies. Okay, I think we'll take one more question and then we'll, yes, We're down here at the second one. Um, I was wondering what the general consensus is on uh, the role uh, genetic engineering um, will play in keeping our species up with the ever-changing environment in the future. Lee, that sounds like you might want to try that. I don't think that's the purpose or role of genetic engineering will, will play. We don't have to worry about a changing environment. We have technology which helps us to overcome environmental adversities. We're not going to need genetic engineering to overcome environmental adversities. I do think, although we didn't discuss it tonight, that cloning is going to be a minor issue in the future. I doubt that very many people are even going to want to use this technology, whereas genetic engineering, although we haven't discussed it, could turn society upside down, not because it's uh, something that society might desire, but it's something individuals in society may desire to give advantages to their children. It's not for a discussion tonight, but I think it's a very, very serious issue that deserves a lot more discussion. Just Dr. very Gordon briefly, I just want to say plague will play no role. And the reason is that we're looking at a population in the world of six billion people, the number of people, very shortly that is, the number of people who are under, going to go undergo genetic engineering is going to have a totally insignificant impact on the human gene pool. And in fact, all reproductive technologies together are really the matter of dealing with individual health problems. They have nothing to do with uh, humans surviving the environment. I would agree with that, but I also think that you underestimate even the tiny percentage of people who may be able to use and desire this technology in the future could have an impact. John, do you have a... Well, I just wanted to say again, I agree with Lee Silver that cloning is, there probably won't be a great demand for it, even in the Model 1 uses that I've talked about. The Model 2 uses will be very small as well. I see the importance of cloning, as I said at the beginning, as a harbinger of dealing with genetic alteration. I think there are a lot of difficult issues there. There will be much greater demand for that, and cloning, if you will, is kind of a warm-up exercise to the big game that lies ahead in the future. Well, with that, let me thank everyone for coming, and I hope you'll join me in thanking tonight's speakers. Thank you all very much. Controversial. Thank you.